Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about the challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. Before we get into the podcast, a word from our sponsors of this episode. Chargebee is a leading subscription billing platform that powers some of the best SaaS startups, such as Hopkins, Bendesk, Livestorm, and Team Leader. The platform is powerful for startups to navigate complex tax compliance, invoicing, and billing regulations. You can also experiment with different pricing models and localize pricing and checkout experience. Check them out at chargebee.com. E-Residency is a digital gateway to the Estonian startup scene for foreign founders and entrepreneurs. The birthplace of Skype, Wise, and Bolt, Estonia has many advantages for early-state startups for doing business remotely. 90,000 e-residents have already joined. Read more about what they offer on their website at eresident.gov.ee. And now, let's get into today's episode. My guest today is Histo Boriso, CEO and co-founder of Payhawk. Payhawk is in the B2B spend management space. They offer an all-in-one financial system that combines credit cards, payments, expenses, cash management, and pre-accounting into one integrated experience. Payhawk became the first Bulgarian unicorn after raising $100 million in early 2022. They're also the first Bulgarian company on my podcast, which I'm very thrilled about. Prior to building Payhawk, Christo spent more than 11 years at Telerik, which was acquired by U.S. Progress Software, where he led the product management team of 180 engineers that created some of their award-winning products. In today's episode, we'll talk about Payhawk and how they became a unit in a space that already had so many well-funded startups in Europe, and Histo's philosophy on how to build a resilient company. So welcome, Histo. Thank you for having me, Anita. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Well, Histo, before we start the actual podcast and about Payhawk, I did want to um, talk about the Silicon Valley Bank um, news that has been consuming tech cycles and news cycles everywhere. I was wondering, did this affect Payhawk at all? And what's your general take on what's happening? Yeah, uh, Payhawk was a company that had some of its own money there. We did not have any customer funds there, but some of our money of about 100 million were in Silicon Valley Bank, which is, again, some of the money we have. We obviously have companies across nine countries, so we had a lot of other, let's say, bank accounts and instruments that we were using. But again, that was not a small amount, not to be concerned. So that was an interesting weekend for us. But on the other side, um, I think... There are a lot of lessons to be taken from what happened and especially the behavior of some of the venture capitalists mm-hmm. and some of the actual companies in the fintech space that were too early to jump on the train and to start scaring people. And I think even some companies in the space that are, let's say, issuing cards and, and bank accounts similarly to Payhawk started offering and advertising their services on late Thursday early Friday when there were still people who had a lot of money at the banks and the banks were still operational, which we found extremely immoral to do. I mean, yeah, that's 100 million is definitely not a small amount of money to have um, for any startup. So what was your reaction when you started hearing news about Silicon Valley Bank? And what did you do? And what advice did you get from the different investors and stakeholders in your so first of all we decided not to panic we wanted to assess the situation we tried to move some money so we had some money in transit as well and at the end of the day over the weekend when things unfolded on late friday that the bank is going to go in insolvency we are actually with the uk bank 
I think that's important to know because the dynamics of the two two banks in the US and the UK were a little bit different. So we managed to assess the situation. I think Saturday was a lot more scary, but then mm-hmm. on on Sunday afternoon we managed to actually speak to investors, assess the the reality and we even managed to look at the financial fi- finances and uh, the funds we have and we decided to actually even open a credit line for customers. So we decided to create a product, an emergency credit card for customers affected by this. And in general, for customers willing to have access to a credit card, we launched that on Sunday and we received a great response for the community that they really felt that this was something that even though we were affected, we were this was something that we were ready to help in other companies that did not have our funds and the positions, strong position on the market. And we have been able to onboard a lot of customers from the US and UK on our credit cards. And I think that is the other thing. Being able to rely on a credit card, being able to use different financial services, different bank accounts is something that needs to become a reality for a lot of companies when there were some companies that had, let's say, 100% of their money in Silicon Valley Bank. And that yeah. is a very scary position to be. And I think that should be a wake-up call uh, from one side to investors about their obligations and the power they have with so many portfolio companies and the relationships they have with their startups on how they should act when there is such kind of situation, because it was a prisoner's dilemma. Yeah. If nobody have acted, that wouldn't have been a problem. But exactly. as soon as everybody started on the move, then the problem started happening. And the second point is really for the startups to really think about their finances and sure they're using multiple products, whether it's a debit, mm. credit, loans, different bank accounts to really ensure that they're in a good stable position. I can see this happening because there's a herd mentality. People panic when they don't know what's going on and everybody, you know, worried about their money. So this is going to happen again and again and again, even, you know, Silicon Valley Bank fundamentally did not have any, any issues. So I think what you're saying about diversifying as a startup where you have your funds and the instruments that you hold your money in, I think is very important and not put everything in one bank so that you're not faced with this kind of crisis situation. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. So let's move on to the podcast today. Before Payhawk, you were an engineer at Telerik. You joined when it was like 70 people and it grew to almost 800 people before being acquired by US Progress Software. What were some of the biggest learnings from that experience that you took to Payhawk that you feel helped you in building Payhawk? Well, I think uh, one of the the biggest lessons was that it doesn't matter with whom you're competing. You have to find your own way and your own reasoning for building a product. And at Teleric, we were competing with companies like Microsoft, Google, and some others. We were building developer tools, right? Which was a little bit different than what we do today. But at the end of the day, you had to have your own unique way and the, uh, the your own unique reason why you exist on the market and why would company come and, and work with you. And I think we, we managed to gain the confidence that it doesn't matter that Microsoft or Google have a product. If you trust your method on how to build a product and if you work well with your customers to really identify the underlying needs and pain points they have, you can come up with something that's novel. And I think everybody builds a product from a different perspective, from a different angle, with a different context, with different engineers. And what you're going to, if you have five teams building the same product, you're going to have five different outcomes. And we really, I think, managed to trust our process of innovation, of how we go and 
and work with customers to understand their needs, to really understand what exactly they need, not exactly what they're saying, but what exactly they need to be able to reflect this into a product that we know that they're going to be excited about. And I think that is the mentality we took from Teleric. Number one, trusting our approach on how to build a product. Second of all, not being intimidated by other companies that are in the space because you should have confidence in your way to build things. And if you don't have this confidence, that would be really hard to convince other engineers, other top talent to be able to come on this journey with you. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you if you don't have the confidence that you can build a world-class product, you cannot convince world-class engineers and world-class product people and world-class salespeople to join your company. So I think that was the second really big lesson. And the third one was at the end of the day that you should be very scrappy. I think the maybe the most important thing was you only need a handful of people to create something novel and something innovative. More is not always good. And that is the, I would say, the weakness we used to all of our competitors that were in the space because all of our competitors already had 100 million plus in funding together, three companies. They already had maybe combined of close to 200 employees. And we knew that innovating with 50, 60 people and innovating with 10 people is very different dynamics. And sometimes Mm. you're when you have already a lot of customers, when you are already have a roadmap, when you are already know what you're building, changing the ship at that stage is much harder than when you are just a lean, small, motivated team ready to do whatever is needed to succeed. And that was our advantage. So these are the things you learned from Telerik, from your working at Telerik. Yes. But each of those is such a good insight for, for people. I do want to spend some time on what you said. So the first thing you said was about product innovation, about being customer focused and not looking at competitors necessarily, the customer's needs. And you said a very important understanding what a customer needs, not what they say. So how do you go about doing that? I think the most important thing is what they usually say is what exists today. And Mm -hmm. it's hard for a lot of consumers to imagine what doesn't exist. And if you're coming from a strong product and engineering background, you immediately are somebody that thinks about building stuff and how things could be done, right? And I think in our specific case, to be able to really emphasize this, we try to use some of our competitors' product when we were doing the initial product validation. So what we did in the first, let's say, 45 days, we were pitching the value proposition and the concept and the products of some of the competitors that already existed. So that we can fast forward what we do the things they're already asking these companies that already invested two, three years and asking them what are the shortcomings, what are the challenges, what are the opportunities and how do you see things? We were also asking them a lot about other products they used in conjunction to this specific product. How, what was the big picture? Not exactly this product, but you know, what was, what were the other pieces of the stack that you needed to fit the the whole picture, to, to put the whole picture together. And we quickly realized that a lot of those products can be in a single product and they can be done in a different way that can actually give a lot more benefits to the customer. If you have all of this information in a single solution. And I think that is what we did with Payhawk instead of just thinking and releasing, let's say credit cards. A lot of the companies we spoke to were using company cards from some of the innovative companies in the space that allowed them to really gather the receipt with the cards, to have rules on the cards, 
we identified that a lot of those companies were already using a lot of other tools to do data extraction and to extract the information from the invoices. A lot of them were managing uh, bills and accounts payable with different systems so that they can manage their suppliers. A lot of them were using bank payments through the online banking, but they were using these innovative company cards on one side. And we decided to really combine all those things together into a single product. And when we went to market with that strategy, a lot of people were saying, is that really possible? We have never seen all those things in, integrated in such a way, which was the novel mm -hmm. thing. And that was our goal, to create something that is very different. I, I want to get into more of, of how you created Payhawk, but I want to go back to the second point you made. Again, a very good point, which was around building confidence and attracting the best engineer, having confidence in what you're building so that you can attract world-class engineers. Can you explain a little bit more about how you do that? How do you go about getting the best people to come with you on something that's just an idea at that point? Well, I think number one starts from A, being able to paint a very compelling picture. You need to be a visionary. You need to be somebody saying, this is an amazing opportunity because of that and that reason. And, and being able to be convey that messaging of not only we're going to go to the moon, but here are the five, six steps we need to do as a team to get there. Second mm -hmm. of all, you should have a trust with this team. You should be somebody that has done that before, or these people have had experienced that or have seen this person doing what this person is saying. And being able to have the ability to work with them as a team. And the third one is, to be fair, to make sure that everybody knows that it is in a relationship where you guys as a team are getting together to solve something big. And you need to make sure that you are very fair on how you incentivize those people, how distributed. You can quickly ruin, ruin the moral of if your company that is struggling with cash, there is to be a big, very big disconnect, let's say, on the salaries. And the reality for us was that when we started Payhawk, our salaries as founders were significantly lower for mm. close to two years than any other employee in the company. Mm. And that was just an example where we really believed so much in our strategy that we were living on the edge in terms of capital so that we can invest everything possible into the business and into the success of that. And at being able to attract those people that are motivated by the vision, that trust you, and that are not that much right now incentivized by the financial rewards, mm. short term, are the best people because they're motivated. And yeah. they're going to stay with you for through all the... They're going to persevere with you because there is going to be a lot of yeah. ups and downs. The life of a startup is, you know, <laughs> a fun. Um, so I think that was a very important thing for me. And, and I also think that you should be an expert at something that they understand. You should be one that is also being able to create a team where their people are feeling that they're being hurt, that mm. their ideas are being sourced. You're able to really create an environment where these people can feel much greater contribution. Because to be realistic, a lot of those people that would join a very early stage startup already had a career, already yeah. have seen what a corporate looks like or what a very structured organization looks like. And they have decided that then in point in time in their life that they can do it. And again, on attracting talent, there is another quite important thing. And the one that you shouldn't make compromises. Mm -hmm. You should not make exceptions. Okay, so we got two, three people almost with no salaries, but we're going to get this big shot guy because he's extraordinary. You should be fair, as I said. Sometimes the timing is quite important when it comes to hiring talent because sometimes 
we as a company really needed somebody. It was a great fit for us, but it wasn't the right time. The person couldn't afford to work for such a salary or a personal, he had personal things that couldn't let him to work as much as needed. Other times we have seen perfect candidates coming to us where it wasn't a good time for us. So the timing should match as well. Yeah. Those are really, really good tips and advice for attracting talent. And it sounds to me like a lot of the really big things around trust and being a visionary and being fair and having a track record, you probably were able to show in your previous company. And so people knew what you were and what you could do and who you were. And so were willing to follow you, even if some of the things that you were trying to build in this new company was still very much a vision and an idea. Okay. I found it so interesting that you decided to start Payhawk in a space that you didn't know anything about. You didn't know fintech. Why did you decide to do something in a space you didn't know anything about? Like, how did you determine that B2B spend management is the space that you want to spend building? A- I think we started the, with the idea that we want to create a big company. And to do that, you need to solve a big problem in a big market. And we knew that we can build anything on the software end and we can build enterprise software and B2B software. But we also knew that the time for being building successful companies that are doing purely software was not really great. There has been so much companies just being software staff and the amount of innovation you can do is, so to say, let's say limited. And we were looking for categories that were emerging. And these categories usually emerge at the intersection of multiple industries. So software with financial services, software with, let's say, biotech, software with medicine, and so mm. on. And we were looking at the crossroad of different things. And I also wanted to build something that's tangible. And financial services mm. is something that is very tangible and very exciting. And when we identified a problem, we knew one thing leads to another. And if you get deep enough to understand what the problem for the customer is and what you need to do, then you can get to the point to actually fit everything else from the puzzle. And we literally started the company by Googling how to issue a card. How do you do that? And right now, I would say we have one of the most sophisticated financial services and financial companies working with financial institutions out there, providing credit cards, debit cards, bank accounts, operating in 32 countries, working with multiple partners, multiple banks, and being able to serve thousands of customers across the globe. And To be able to do that, you really need to trust your skill set, right? And you should be prepared to learn a lot and to be outside of your comfort zone. And I think that is, I think maybe the reason why a lot of entrepreneurs start a business in the first place, because they want to be learning and Mm -hmm. every day is an opportunity for you to to improve. Interesting. The spend category, B2B spend category, when you were doing your research, you must have come across the fact that you have several really well-capitalized startups in Europe funded by some of the biggest VCs. How did you go about determining where the white space is? To be fair, didn't have all the full understanding of how we are going to exactly beat everybody, right? We knew that we should, we knew that our competitive advantage is software and we should bring the game to be about software. And if we do that, then we were very confident we are going to be the winner. So the question was, how can we match the stack and the payments capabilities that these companies already have? And there is a great article by Michael Porter at Harvard Business School that talks about poor strategy. And in this article, he explains that strategy is you have a plan to go from A to B. And as you go from your plan, many things happen to you. 
And the way you make these decisions and the way you decide to go left and right and pick up different opportunities, what actually strategy is. So our plan was we need to get from A to B, but we knew that we were going to figure out the strategy along the way, depending on the opportunities and depending on what uh, is thrown. Definitely, we don't, did not expect at the time that it's not going to be software, it's not going to be competition, it's not going to be anything else, but fundraising, that's going to be the biggest mm-hmm. issue. And we were a company that I guess we got like, 60 rejections from 42 funds or something like that. It was like a huge, exhausting year, 2019, where we tried to raise capital and all the companies in the space already had one of the best names of the VC market. And this is where we quickly realized that we really need a tar one investor who has the confidence to compete with the rest of the VCs. Otherwise, there is mm-hmm. no chance. And we were very happy to start working with Early Bird Digital as a fund that is the seed investor of UiPath and other companies coming from Eastern Europe and being able mm. to really create big companies. I think that was, let's say, the biggest struggle, but we didn't have all the answers from day one, for sure. So how did you overcome that big objection that, hey, look, there are already some really well-funded companies in this space. You guys don't have the background. You know, you're starting behind whatever, 18 months, a couple of years behind in terms of where they already are. First of all, I'm sure we would have given after so many rejections if it wasn't us again trusting the process because we had this kind of a really big reality disconnect that on one side, customers saying what you guys are building is exactly what we need. And on the other side, you have the VC saying you guys have no chance versus so much money. And then we realized that for VC, their strategy is usually whoever has the most money wins it. Right. And it's really hard to make argument. We are going to build these and these things because to them, you're going to build them. But how are they going to be better when they have more money? Because the VC, the only thing that they can give you is an advice and money. Right. So yeah. every problem is yeah. solved with money. And I think you should, you had to find a VC that really sees beyond that, sees that mm-hmm. motivation, background, talent, or early traction, customer feedback are things that are actually quite important. And it's not going to be just about who has the most money. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, there would have been just three, four VCs in the world that invest in the best companies. And then there would have been need for other investors to be out there. Why can't the, the companies that are there now do what you wanted to do, which is do this integration and bring everything together? Why couldn't they have done well, I think, first of all, because we started directly with that goal without mm-hmm. having a huge Let amount of customers, huge amount of already decisions we have made on the product side, on the infrastructure side, uh, in the infrastructure side, on the architecture side. Every decision for a product that you make is yeah. can be a backlog or something that you carry on with you. And that's why when you have a goal, just go there without having all the liabilities and debt, that would be much faster way to get there. The second of all, we were also focused on something that happened along the line, just to re-illustrate this vision from A to B. We knew we want to go and target multinational companies or big companies, right? And because we were initially based in Bulgaria, we knew that there is no local market. So for day one, we had to be international. So from day one, we had to be going and chasing companies across Europe that were using multiple companies. And we built infrastructure to support companies in so many markets. And when we look at our competitors, 90% of their revenue at the time was based in their home country, Hmm. right? They were still not international. They were great local companies. Some of them even unicorns already. Mm -hmm. But 
building an international company was a separate thing. And because this was not a market where the winner takes it all, because it's a fragmented, there is a lot of localities, a lot of different country specifics. You cannot just build something amazing in one country that automatically is adopted everywhere. And that became their liability that mm. they had the majority of their teams in one country trying to expand to a second country. While from day one, we were international. We had employees in Germany, in Spain, in the UK, and so on. And that actually became the opportunity for us. And we really, as I said, as part of the strategy example I gave, that was our decision point where, okay, if that's the point, then what we should do is really focus at even bigger companies because mm. those bigger companies are going to be multinational. They would need local specifics and also, the bigger the company is, the bigger the need for software is, which is also another strength that we have. Interesting. Is 2019 when you closed your seed round around when that wire card collapse happened? That is a different, again, part of the story, right? So 2019 was, we raised the pre-seed round in, I think, January 2019 with the idea of getting, a, let's say, a more modern niche work. And, you know, we have been fundraising during the whole year with that model in mind. And the idea was that we can get it up and running in six months. We started in January, 2019. We managed to get the card program out because of them in June, 2020. So it took us a year and a half, huge delay. And then on June 16, 2020, we released our product. Two days later, they went down. Yes. And <laughs> that was, I think that is a kind of, character forming experience for the whole company because that happened. We have other places where other partners we have worked with went into insolvency or bankrupted or had issues. Now the thing with Silicon Valley Bank was yet a problem. Mm -hmm. And I never had any doubts because I knew we have the team and uh, this is life at Payhawk. You need to be pushing hard. You need to be going through these situations. And this makes the company even stronger and stronger. And uh, it is very assuring that, reassuring that with those people that are at the company right now, I feel that we can do everything. You're absolutely right in that those kind of moments in a startup's life really are character forming. How should founders navigate these kind of situations? Can you talk me through, go back to that time when, when you issued your card two days later, a wire card goes down. What did you do? Yeah, I think one thing we did in this specific example was that we closed the round, we signed the term sheet in December 2019. And on March 13, 2020, which was the day of the first lockdown in Bulgaria, we sent a call to investors to send the seed round. And then June 16, March 16, we were all in lockdown with money in the bank. So we slept for three days. But the first thing we did then was that we have been already in that relationship with Quarkart for a year and a few months. And we already knew that's not going to work and that we needed a better partner. And this is where also a great relationship with the VC happens because they invested, they knew that we were working on this program. In, it had great unit economics, but it was far from becoming a reality. And on the first board meeting, which was literally next week, we told them, guys, we have to change this. We have to throw away through the window 300,000 euro. We have to find an alternative setup and we need to build it fast. And the board was supportive. They said, we trust you guys, you know your staff. If you don't believe this is going to be the right part, uh, accept it. And I think sometimes founders should accept reality. Uh, 
as long as they want the product to work, if the market doesn't get it, it's the wrong decision. If they mm. want an employee to be successful and they're pushing for that employee and it's not successful, they should just accept it. And the faster you accept reality, the more sober view you have and the better actions you're going to take. And in this case, we were lucky enough that we used the position that we were already a Wirecard customer, so to say, to negotiate an amazing let's say, unit economics with another issuer. And when the things happened in June, we were already two months into yeah. an alternative project. And I think not putting all the eggs in one basket, when it comes to a bank account, when it comes to a product, when it comes to a vendor, is an important thing because at the end of the day, every construction is as strong as the weakest link. And you want yeah. to make sure that everything can stay. And in our case, when this thing happened with Wirecard, it was extremely unexpected. We were really, let's say, devastated for half a day. But then we managed to pick ourselves together, accelerate the timelines with the alternative card providers. We already had another card provider as an alternative always. So we managed to really navigate that without customers having any disruption to their businesses, without feeling any kind of challenges. We managed to really cushion for that and be able to really create also the technical infrastructure to be able to quickly switch some of those main vendors that you need to rely on, which made the system extremely resilient and strong for such kind of disasters. You have so much self-belief in what you're doing that these kind of crises, while stressful, are not enough to topple you because you you know where you're going and you're going to get through it regardless. That seems to be your mindset. But how do you motivate employees when they're seeing panic in the news all around them, this kind of events that could potentially sink a company like Payhawk. I mean, I'm getting from what you're saying, you come across as somebody who has a plan and who is communicating that plan and what's happening, the reality of the situation and how you are going to navigate out of it and giving that communication to the employees, I'm sure, is one aspect of making them confident that this leadership is going to get them through and the company is not going to go anywhere. Is there anything else other than that that you think you, your HR team or the company does well to navigate through these near-death experiences? I think, you know, in stormy seas, everybody looks at the skipper. And I think in that kind of situation, you are the mirror for the organization. If you as a leadership team panic, then everybody else is going to panic. If you are one that's calm, that assesses the situation clearly, processes information, knows how much to communicate and to who, in what sequence, I think that's very critical. And definitely, you want to communicate, but you don't want to over-communicate things that might come the wrong way or might scare mm. people. And definitely, you don't want to be fully silent so that mm. you leave the gossips and the rumors to be happening. So... Finding the right time uh, and having enough information to communicate is important. I think that is number one priority, to stay calm. And there are many things that are happening, but nobody's hurt, luckily, and everybody's safe and everybody's right here and motivated. And let's go through this. Like with every change, if you look at how you manage change as a process, as a leader, the first thing is disbelief and rejection hey, something happened. No, it doesn't happen and so on. And then there is realization. And then there is the productivity phase where you are actually now coming to terms. You have realized it. This has happened. It's a fact. 
What can I do about it? And the faster you can go through this cycle as a leader, the better you're going to arrive at the productive side and saying, okay, it is what it is. Let's not blame ourselves what we could have done. What, what is done is already done. What can we do to alleviate the problem? What we can do to address the problem? How can we make sure we have a very clear action plan going forward? And then, of course, you can do a retrospective a few weeks ago after the fact or sometime when things had a coma and to look at it and draw any kind of conclusions on how you can prevent this for the future. But in, you need to really quickly as a leader switch on, accept the fact that is it. What are the facts? Can I get more information? Is this everything I know? What can I do about it? Yeah. I love the idea of retrospectively going back when things are calmer and looking at that decision point and seeing what you can learn from it and how you can improve it, because I'm sure it's not the first or the last one in the life of the company. What about competitor? You said a little bit in the beginning about competition and not focusing too much on what the competition is doing. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you think about competition. Because what I see is founders can be on the extreme. Either they obsess over everything the competitors are doing or ignore them completely. How do you think about competition? So I think definitely we shouldn't obsess with competitors because if you're looking at what a competitor is doing, if you want to achieve those things, it is three to six months until you get there. And until you get there, they are, have three to six months more <laughs> to achieve. And I think... You really need to do your process and to really ensure you know what are the options and how things are happening. That doesn't mean you're not surprised and you might not be surprised. Sometimes there are capabilities or actions that need attention. And the best way is also not to judge that based on the marketing, right? Mm. Judge it based on the behavior and the actions and the data from your prospect deals or from the deals that are in the pipeline, from the customers that are churning, from the customers that are onboarding right now. And try to base this data not on emotions, not on some flashy marketing, not on anything that, that that's outside of your control. Focus on A, what is the reality happening? How can we better react, even if it's not about the product? Because sometimes... People forget that the whole product is well above the features and the capabilities and the engineering work. A whole product is how you sell, how you support, how you onboard customers, how you pretty much provide this product to, mm. to, to your customers. And I think that's quite an important thing because sometimes a lot of those deficiencies or let's say disadvantages you might have can be addressed in other ways than just slapping them on the roadmap blindly. And thinking yeah. that once you build it, it's going to fix the problem. So I think you should definitely be aware of the competitors and know what's going on, but should not be obsessed. You should be obsessed with your customer because if you're obsessed about your customer, you're hearing absolutely the same things they're hearing as well. Yeah. And you should build your own path. You should trust your process and not panic. I love it. I love the two insights that you gave. One is don't look at the marketing, look at the other data in your pipeline, in your prospect from your customers. What are they saying rather than marketing? Because you're right. You can say something and two weeks later, everybody is saying the same thing and you never know what's real and what's not real. So I think that's really brilliant. And I love the idea about not thinking about just the product and the features and the roadmap, but the entire end-to-end -end service from onboarding to support and making sure that whole service is the most delightful for the customer um, rather than looking at one piece in isolation. Okay, great. 
you've obviously accomplished a lot, Christo, with with Payhawk. You must be so proud of uh, building the first unicorn from Bulgaria. What are you most proud of achieving? I'm very proud that we have a shot as a, as a team to really create something that's industry defining. Something that can really define an industry, become an amazing product that's being used globally and that is really improving the everyday um, of our customers. And it's really changing. It's a kind of a lifetime achievement for our employees that that went through that experience. That's that's what I'm most proud of, that at the end of the day, we are now right now creating our own, so to say, destiny. And every day we're on the crossroad. We can either come super motivated, do our best, look at the bright side, push on the positives and do everything that's possible and within our control. Or we can come and say we already achieved it and so forth and so on. And we really miss the opportunity to create a category defining product, uh, which I think that's what I'm most proud of. That right now, what I see is that we are every day increasing the probability of Payhawk becoming a world company that's going to dominate the space. And that is the reason why I come to to work every day. I love it. I love that. And uh, my one last question before we go to the rapid round. There's a lot happening in, in the world today with interest rates and, and all the other you know, macroeconomic factors. What are some of the trends you see in your space or in fintech in general, where do you see the big opportunities for other startups in Europe, in fintech? Yeah, I think the most exciting part is that specifically, let's say for the B2B space, I'd say actually I'm even more excited about consumers than B2B mm. because for consumers, really the impact of everyday usage is, is massive and we're still scratching the surface on the things we can do. And I think that's something that is whether it's on how customers pay or how they have access to financial products or how they manage their investments, there is a lot that can be done there. On the business side, I think if you look at the amount of software companies you're using that are disconnected from payments, it is huge gap. Right now, I don't see a reason why, why shouldn't almost every software company in the next 10 years have something to do with payments, something that is integrated, something that allows you to really do business with ease. Because at the end of the day, the reality is that if you have a software that is disconnected from the payment system, it's not helping you do your business in the most efficient way. You have to keep a system, which is a system of a record somewhere, just clicking something in a software, doing something, and then you have to go and do the actual business, which is transferring the money, receiving the money, or buying something or selling something and so on. And I think that kind of an integration across the payments is going to be key, whether it comes to payroll or cross-border payments or other sources like crypto or other kind of currencies that would be coming. There are There is a lot to be done between bridging these payments and the actual software and systems those businesses use on an everyday basis. So a lot is happening and I'm a big supporter of fintech and I also do a lot of angel investing and I'm happy to be an investor in many companies that are doing consumer products, business products, also infrastructure products. So I'm definitely keeping an eye on the market. Okay, so the last part is a rapid fire round. And I usually start with, what's a book that made an impact on you? Like what's a book you've read recently or in the past that you would recommend for to other people to read. It could be to entrepreneurs and about entrepreneurship, but it could also be just a general book that made an impact. I think 
right now I'm a little bit more into selling and I try to read things that are outside of the business world for a change. And most recently I was reading a company called The Proving Ground, which is the inside story of the 1998 Sydney to Hobart boat race about three different boats with three different perspectives on how they went onto the race. Obviously, in that race, some lives were lost. And it is quite a great story of how leadership and working with your crew and working with the teams uh, that we have can really uh, result in very different outcomes. So that was a book that I would say I most recently read that really I felt very strong about some of the lessons in there. Lovely. What's the name again? The Proving Ground. The Proving Ground. Okay. I'll uh, link and there it are many our... books that are The Proving yeah. Ground. So this one is The Proving Ground, Sydney to Hobart, a boat okay. race. Okay. Okay. I'll look it up and I'll link it to the podcast notes. What's a productivity tool or productivity tip that helps you be productive? Don't look at your email constantly. Try to find time for mail and for communication that is separate from your everyday stuff so that you have quality time for things to go deep into. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the only thing you're doing is mail, Slack, communication. Uh, so block your time when to deal with communication so you have enough of headspace. Yep. Lovely. What's your favorite European city? Uh, definitely Barcelona. We have an office there and uh, our Spanish team knows that I really love to, to visit Barcelona. This is again, maybe related to sailing. Barcelona is very obviously a great place for sailing. It's also very close to the Alps for skiing and snowboarding, which I love. It's definitely maybe the, one of the very few cities I would consider moving at some point. I love it. Nice. And then my last question is a quote, either yours or, or a quote that Someone else said that you'd like to share. Yeah. So never doubt that small group of highly motivated people can change the world because this is the only thing that has changed the world. I love it. And it's obviously something that um, you and Payhawk are a testament to. So um, that's brilliant. Thank you so much, Christo, for being on my podcast today. I really enjoyed our conversation and I wish you all the best. Thank you, Anita. Likewise. Ciao. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. I don't charge guests to be on the show, and your ratings and review help the show stay alive. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, keep building.